the same tiny bone deposit of prostate cancer that I can visualize in 2018 with one of several sophisticated imaging technologies, I may not have been able to visualize in 1998 at all. You want medical research to be thorough, to pick up all the potential problems with a drug or device. But if you're a regular listener to the BMJ podcast, you'll know all about overdiagnosis, the problem of catching and treating something that, on balance, wouldn't require medical intervention. In a new analysis just published on bmj.com, Vinay Prasad, hematologist, oncologist in Oregon and friend of the pod, applies the idea of overdiagnosis to research and argues that in some studies, the way we're measuring disease is problematic. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and earlier I caught up with Vinay to delve into the problem. Vinay Prasad, thank you again for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Duncan. Um, So this new article that you've just published with us the central argument of it is, I suppose, essentially that definitions of myocardial infarction and stroke um, have become so broad as to almost render them useless uh, as outcomes in clinical trials. Um, and you start your article by telling us that there have been new studies which have thrown discord into the evidence base around the kind of ca- those cardiovascular outcomes after cancer treatments. Um, could you kind of summarize for us you know, what those studies are, what they're looking for, and, and how that has changed over time? Oh, I, I'd love to do that. And I guess what I would say about this is um, if you ask someone, a patient, a doctor, a layperson, a healthcare professional, wouldn't it be better off not to have a myocardial infarction, a heart attack, a stroke? Wouldn't, it, wouldn't you be better off not to have a cancer comeback, not to have metastatic cancer? I think we would all say absolutely. Avoiding those things um, is a good thing to do. Those sound bad, and I don't want to have any of those endpoints happen <laughs> no. to me. Uh, so I think we have this intuitive and natural aversion to these events. And, and part of that comes from the fact that over many years, when you think about a heart attack, when I think about a stroke, we think about something in our mind, an event that carries with it some loss of the quality of life and perhaps even a loss of the quantity Mm. of life down the road. Um, So we have this sort of mental construct of what that means to have a heart attack. And one of the things that Go Nishikawa and I, who wrote the paper, and unfortunately Go can't be with us today, he's he's a very hardworking hospitalist. (laughs) Um, But one of the things we had noticed was that In some of the earlier studies, you would see drugs or interventions that would lower the rate of heart attacks and strokes, and then a few years later, or at the same time, there would be some suggestion it lowers the rate of cardiovascular death or all-cause mortality. Maybe not statistically significant, but at least it was headed in that direction. They looked like perhaps there was some signal. And similarly, with cancer drugs, we saw there were drugs that prevented recurrences, but they also improved overall mortality, Um, or at least they hinted that they Mm -hmm. were going to do that. In more recent years, what we've seen, what Go and I noticed, was there's some drugs that have trials that look very similar to the older trials. In other words, they have similar reductions in MI or stroke, but there's absolutely no signal for cardiovascular death. There's no signal for all-cause mortality. 
So we started to ask ourselves, why is this discordant? Why is it the case that you know, not that long ago when you prevented heart attacks, you also lowered or trended to lower the rate of cardiovascular death. But now are these two endpoints not moving in lockstep? And one of the hypotheses that we advance in this article is that, is it possible that what we mean by MI, you know, in our minds it may remain the same, what a heart attack means to you or I, but the diagnostic criteria that counts as an endpoint in a clinical trial may be getting broader and broader, including disease of lesser severity, which doesn't correlate with improvements in the harder endpoints, but does get scored as an event. And I think the kind of provocative idea we're advancing is, um, is it still the case that these things that sound bad should be the endpoints of studies? Or perhaps should we move to more rigorous endpoints like health-related quality of life, which is a direct measure of how people and the quality of life people have, or all-cause mortality, which is a direct measure of how long we live? So that's kind of the question that we, we, we struggle with in this analysis that you know, obviously has a great deal of data that you know, we're not going to be able to talk about right now, but so I would urge readers to kind of take a deep look at it. Sure. And, uh, you know, this story is one that people who listen to the podcast or read the BMJ will be fairly aware of. You know, this is kind mm-hmm. of classic overdiagnosis, but now taken out of treatment and into, into the clinical trial instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think overdiagnosis refers to the phenomenon of labeling someone with a diagnosis um, that does not and cannot be used to improve their quantity or quality of life. And in fact, you know, what we're alluding to is some of these endpoints may be kind of overdiagnosed endpoints if you give somebody that label, but that cannot be used to leverage better health outcomes. Um, So we are kind of alluding to this theme, uh, this theme that, you know, the BMJ uh, obviously does such a good job at kind of explaining a very counterintuitive concept that I think most physicians and most people still struggle with getting their mind around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Shall we just dive into a little bit more detail there? You've kind of sketched out some of the the expansions that that we're talking about, but could you give us um, a couple more specific examples? That's a great point. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the prostate cancer example. So, you know, we've had a couple of studies, more recently, a prote- the, more recently the PROTECT study. And the PROTECT study took people with localized prostate cancer and randomized them to active surveillance, radical prostatectomy, or, ra- or radiotherapy. And this is kind of one of the biggest questions in, in localized prostate cancer, which is which patients should get active surveillance? Which patients should you intervene? When do you make that decision? How do you engage in shared decision-making? It's not an easy space to be in. It's clearly a controversial space. Um, This trial was run. It found um, no real difference in health-related quality of life between the arms, although some of the arms that got treatment had maybe worse sexual function and maybe worse urinary symptoms Mm -hmm. um, than the observation or the active surveillance arm. But one of the things they did note was that the group of people who had active surveillance had a slightly higher rate of developing metastases. And so some experts were arguing, look, and we have a quote in the article, quote, this is an expert saying, developing metastatic prostate cancer is a life-changing event, which brings the fear of dying of prostate cancer into patients' lives. And this expert also added, is it really considered a success if a man suffers recurrence with metastatic disease, which often means a painful bony fracture? Okay, so I think it's a very powerful image, and all of us intuitively understand this, that, yeah, 
I would not want my prostate cancer coming back, and I absolutely wouldn't want metastatic cancer that presents with a painful bony fracture, which does happen to patients. That's absolutely true. But the question that we had was, the metastatic disease in this trial that's getting scored as an event, is it really painful bony fractures, or is it some small, low-volume disease that's picked up on one of these increasingly sensitive and sophisticated scans that a patient may or may not even feel? And the answer to that question is, when you read the paper very closely, is you just don't know the answer. Um, and, and I think that that's kind of concerning. Um, and I think that raises the question of, if you are averting metastasis, and if metastasis is this life-changing event, why is health-related quality of life not improved? Why is overall survival not improved? Um, there's this disconnect between the two. And one of the hypotheses, or one of the, one of the things that we kind of argue in this paper is, we do not need to speculate in these clinical trials what percent of people present with painful, bony, metastatic fractures. Um, we can directly ask that question. That data exists. Um, and if that's what you're worried about, you can report that endpoints separately. Um, and one of the things we call for is data sharing where other investigators can look at these endpoints where we can actually interrogate what does it mean um, to have a painful bony metastasis. Um, what does it mean to have a metastasis and what percent of those are painful bony ones? One thing I'll say is in the course of having published this paper, um, I've heard back from, from some physicians. And one physician said that he had spent some time working on clinical trials adjudicating the endpoint of MI in clinical trials. And he said, um, every doctor should do this to adjudicate the endpoint in clinical trials so that they get a sense of what does it mean to have an MI according to this trial and whether or not that actually fits with their gestalt idea of an MI. And they may be surprised, he told me. Um, he pointed out that one easy way to overcome this would be if a paper kind of randomly picked 20 people with MIs and wrote a little case vignette of what was their MI like, you know, how did they present, how was it detected, yeah. what did that look like, and, and then readers can kind of get a sense of, oh, this is what this paper means by MI and whether or not that fits with what I mean by MI in my clinic. Sure. Now... When we think about overdiagnosis, as we've talked about before, it's always been in the context of, of treatment. So expanding a definition of disease captures more people within that diagnosis, which then you know, can lead to, to more people being treated. Absolutely. And you can see where the incentives there are for industry or whomever else to, to do that. When it comes to expanding these definitions within trials, you know, what... What's the motivation there? Why would that want to be done? Oh, that's a great question. So I guess I would say that it may not even be a voluntary decision. So some of the reason why metastasis has expanded is because of improvements in imaging. The same tiny bone deposit of prostate cancer that I can visualize in 2018 with one of several sophisticated imaging technologies, I may not have been able to visualize in 1998 at all. And I may be calling somebody with a metastatic disease deposit as metastatic today, whom in 1998, that wouldn't have been scored that way. And this may be absolutely unintentional, but just a simple consequence of the fact that our diagnostic testing is getting better, more and more sensitive, able to pick up very small levels of burdens of disease. It may be an unintentional consequence, but at the same time, 
um, one could kind of ask your question, which is that even though it may be unintentional that the category of MI is kind of getting more broad as we see more high sensitivity troponin assays, et cetera, even though people may not have thought about that explicitly, um, to some degree they do they are aware of that. Um, but in the case of imaging, they may not have thought about it explicitly. But one thing you may ask, you may wonder is, well, why do so many of these trials use these kind of composite endpoints, and why aren't we more routinely measuring overall survival and health-related quality of life as the primary endpoint? And that is a conscious choice. And one of the things I would say is, um, when you run a trial, one of the things that makes your trial run faster and run at lower cost is higher event rates. And there's no better way to increase the event rate than including more things of lesser severity as events and to broaden what you mean by those events. So if you broaden the event categories, you add more categories as events, make broad composite endpoints, you have higher event rates, that makes trials run faster, um, that makes them run more cheaply. And so there is perhaps a financial or professional motivation to have these kind of broad categories um, and to permit and to tolerate the broadening of categories, um, even if it to some degree may be unintentional. Mm, absolutely. And earlier you called for, you know, the fact that we should be measuring things like all-cause mortality or proper quality of, of life indicators um, as part of these trials. Uh, and, and you've identified a, a couple of trials on this, but um, we published a paper earlier this year by uh, Hussein Nietzsche and colleagues from the London School of Economics uh, looking at the number of trials that... Uh, you know, get used for the regulatory approval. And um, it seems that this is incredibly widespread. So this kind of disease expansion um, is very prevalent uh, within our kind of system of, of um, trials at the moment. Yeah, from a regulatory standpoint, I think you know, the use of uncontrolled trials, the use of surrogate endpoints, not measuring or perhaps not reporting uh, survival or quality of life. These are common scenarios, and I think they're concerning. And I mean, I, I do want to say that I think the regulators have a difficult job. I think they um, often um, can never win. They're criticized on both sides, either by the industry side or by the by the patient uh, safety, patient advocate, uh, evidence-based medicine side. Uh, they're criticized on both sides, no matter, you know, they're trying to strike a balance. So I think they have a difficult role. Um, but I do think um, their standards at times have been too low and have prioritized the interests of the industry a bit more than the interests of what the public um, would want. Um, in terms of sort of some of the solutions that we talk about for this problem of the endpoint of trials, I think, um, you know, if you really run a trial and you want to know, okay, MI was reduced from 3% to 2%, does that matter for my patients? So what would I want to know? I think one thing that would be wonderful is if we had access to individual patient data so we could start to ask some questions of, well, what about ST elevation MI? What about MI leading to cardiogenic shock? The investigators did not report that, for instance, in the Fourier trial that we talked about. Um, could we go back and look at that and, and ask, were those endpoints improved in a data sharing sort of space? The second thing you might want to say is, can you provide some, you know, case studies of what was it like for somebody who had an MI? Um, what was their symptoms? How did they present? How was it detected? Um, and what was their ultimate fate? Um, the other thing I would like to see is, 
health-related quality of life more routinely captured and reported when captured. There's some studies that suggest it's being captured in cancer trials, um, but it's not being reported. Um, and one wonders why it's not being reported. I, I find it hard to believe it's not reported when it's so wonderful. Um, so I would like to see it reported. Uh, the other thing I would like to see is patients participating in the design of trials from the outset, stating what endpoints matter to them. How would they want to measure and count those endpoints? And then after the trial is run, they should have some access to the data to review the data and to say, how can we do better the next time we run a trial in this space? What should we change? What should we keep? Um, I think that would go a long way. Um, ultimately, you know, some of these ideas of moving the trial away from the group um, that stands to make so, so much money from a positive result and to a group that really kind of more impartially wants to look at it, I think would, would go a long way. Um, but you're, I think, But I think your question is a good one, which is, um, is the regulatory state moving perhaps in the other direction? Um, and I, I, I worry that that might be the case. So, Vinay, you're still uh, working. You're an oncologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've set out how the, the future of this could look if, if everything was fixed. But at the moment, how mm-hmm. do you, when you're reading papers and, and thinking about this, now you've identified this problem, um, I don't know. How do you parse this into uh, into your knowledge? What do you do about it? Wow, that's a that's a great question because you're right. Um, you know, um, I see patients in clinic for part of my time, and um, I won't have the luxury of all of the kind of long term solutions we've outlined. At least in the short term, so we have to make decisions. Um, let let me use as one example, one of the examples we talk about in the paper, um, which is the role of sunitinib in adjuvant kidney cancer. This is a drug that was tested for people whose kidney cancer was cut out, fully excised. They were put on this drug, which has a real cost, a real toxicity, um, and it was tested in actually two randomized trials. In both randomized trials, if you look at it, there's no sign that it improves overall mortality. There's evidence that actually worsens quality of life. And in one of the two studies, it actually delayed the time until cancer was came back, until there was a cancer recurrence or metastasis. Um, and that's one of the endpoints we're talking about. Has that kind of expanded or drifted? So, you know, as a clinician, we're faced with this decision of um, there's a patient in front of you who kind of meets the approved rule for sunitinib. Um, and I know it doesn't improve survival. I know it worsens quality of life. I know it will delay the time until the cancer comes back, but I don't know what that means. Uh, is that a painful bony metastasis or is that a very small um, subsegmental uh, nodule on a CT scan that's asymptomatic and that was able to be needle biopsied um, by you know the wizards in interventional radiology? And I, so I don't know what this endpoint really means to patients, um, but I do know about survival. I do know about quality of life. So what I do is how do I incorporate into my into my practice um, is that I believe, um, I mean, I believe that as doctors, our duty is to be as good at explaining the medical side of information with patients, as good as eliciting their values and preferences as we possibly can be, and engaging in a real important shared decision-making discussion with patients. Um, and so I will, you know, sit someone down and go through this and talk about, you know, um, 
what we know about survival and, and why we think survival is so important. And if, if this drug had improved survival, why, you know, this discussion would be probably going a lot faster because many, many more people would be very enthusiastic about this therapy. Okay. And then we'll I'll talk about health-related quality of life a little bit. How is that measured? What are the side effects you might expect? How, you know, not everyone will have the same impact from this medicine. Some people feel maybe a lot worse and want to throw it in the trash can. Some people, maybe it won't be so bad. Then I'll talk about what do we know this drug does? How did we try to measure what this drug does? And what do we not know about this drug? Um, and try to get into the fact that we really, it's not 100% clear what it means to have a recurrence in this in this trial. Um, and of course, in the trial, they're doing CAT scans at certain frequencies, which we may not be doing that exact same frequency in the clinic. And so there's some of these differences. And then you talk to somebody about their values and preferences and um, get a sense of how willing they are to tolerate this uncertainty for this potential benefit, um, to tolerate this no certain toxicity for an uncertain clinical benefit. And then, you know, after kind of this discussion, um, I think we can move forward with a decision. And it's going to be not always the same decision for everybody. You know, it'll be different for a different person. But then I'll feel as if I've done my my duty as a doctor. Um, I've done you know what we're supposed to do. So I think at, at a practical level, how this should make you know impact your therapy is you're counseling a patient about a PCSK9 drug. You're counseling a patient about one of these medicines we talk about in the paper, um, an adjuvant drug for kidney cancer. You can use this kind of knowledge to be a little bit, I hope, more humble and open-minded and perhaps more accurate in how you characterize um, this intervention. And so I would say to that expert who says that, you know, boy, wouldn't it be bad if this cancer came back with a painful bony metastasis? I would say that's absolutely true. But if you told that to every patient, I think it would be a, a bit misleading because you don't know for sure what percent of patients in that trial, the metastatic disease that was scored was a painful bony met. Um, and one wonders how high it was. Um, so I think, you know, I would be a little bit more cautious about how much I present it that way, um, not wanting to make fear lead to the decision, but rather sort of a good, informed, best understanding of the data. So I hope that helps. I know it's not, you know, it's not 100% satisfying, but I feel like more and more the job of the 21st century physician is to be the best interpreter uh, and best communicator we can possibly be and to facilitate shared decision-making in the most meaningful way possible. And I learned that in part because of Richard Lehman, who I miss terribly, uh, as you know, who was a wonderful a blogger for the BMJ. Yes, yeah. I mean, just sort of talking about your, your own point there, and I think that is, you know, uh, what a lot of the conversations that, that we have at the BMJ, especially with um, patients who are reviewing our articles and things, uh, are talking about. But... Um, it seems like the kind of trials that that you're describing here with these um, certain disease expansions are, are making that job more and more difficult. I think they are. They're making it more and more difficult. Um, they're making it more and more difficult to communicate because we're talking about things that aren't as intuitive as things once were. Um, you know, the MI in a trial may not be the MI you think about growing up when you when you heard that a friend's father had an MI or something like that. They may be different constructs, and and it's it's something we have to think about more and more. And I guess I would say, um, you know, it it makes the job of practice difficult. And 
let me also say, I mean, I think there's, what is the reason why we, you know, spend so much time doing this research and talk about this? I think if we want the profession to get better and make sure that more of our trials look at endpoints that actually matter to people, we measure things in a way that actually makes shared decision-making better and easier, we have to start being a little bit more honest about some of the interests that pull us in different ways and some of the fact and some the mere fact that you know just because we do more randomized trials in 2018 than before doesn't mean we're every randomized trial is great and we may be in many ways um, going in the wrong direction and this is something that I think you know John Yonides has put well where he says evidence-based medicine is it's starting to be hijacked um, something that was had such great and lofty ambitions and still is such a noble cause is being increasingly um, pulled in this direction of advancing commercial interests um, and maybe at the price of making the actual doctor-patient interactions more and more difficult, I think. Mm. I remember last time we talked, um, we had a conversation about uh, the names that we give things. So, you know, I, I think the example you talked about then was how maybe something like um, DCA, DCIS uh, mm. We shouldn't talk about that as being cancer. You know, it should be a different thing. And it makes me think that, uh, you know, some of these expanded definitions that you talk about, you know, talking about an MI, uh, is perhaps not perhaps doing a, a similar thing and, and doing a disservice to patients. Absolutely. I think that we have to be very careful to um, use labels that accurately capture the thing we're talking about. And that's true for, you know, should the taking the C out of DCIS, should you have the cancer word in DCIS, does that actually lead to decisions that are actually mm, not compatible with what patients really want? On the other side, the breakthrough therapy designation of the FDA. When something sounds like it's gotten breakthrough designation, it sounds really wonderful, but is it really wonderful? Does the use of the word breakthrough actually, um, to some degree, kind of rob us of the ability to look at this a bit more impartially? Should that word be used so so much? Um, should MI have a footnote? We're talking about MI 1986. This is a 1986 MI. This is what we meant by MI 1986, not MI 2018, which may mean something slightly different. Um, metastatic disease 1998 might be different than metastatic disease 2018 uh, in the era of uh, you know widespread use of PET scans with some of these novel radio tracers that are extremely extremely sensitive for very low volume disease. You know, is that the same construct? Um, we we may have to start labeling these things differently so at least we can start to think about this. And and that's really kind of what Go and I tried to do. We, we, we know and we do not pretend that we have answered all of the questions here. And, and we know we, we haven't and we know we want to know a lot more. Um, this is only a starting point, but we hope to be able to start to have this discussion. And, you know, and since we wrote the paper, there was that recent paper in The Lancet on high-sensitivity troponin, which was a cluster, step-wedge, randomized control trial. Um, and this showed, and I urge um, listeners to take a look at this paper as well, because I think it really kind of drove home a point that we were making, which was you can, you can develop a new assay and a new cut point to identify heart attacks, and you will find more heart attacks than you used to find. And that may make you feel good, because who wants to miss a heart attack, especially in the emergency room? That's a life-threatening diagnosis. Who wants to miss that? And if you find a better way to find more 
you've got to be helping patients, right? So the logic would go. And in this randomized controlled trial, they find with 12 months follow-up that actually there was no improvement in subsequent MI or death from cardiovascular causes. And so one wonders if the people who were added to the diagnostic label MI, these additional people who were given that label, what did that label do for them? It appears it may not have done that much other than, you know, give them something else to worry about. And that the MI after the use of this assay may not be the same as the MI before the use of this assay or the MI five years ago sort of thing. Absolutely. And as you uh, urge people to go and read a paper in The Lancet, I'm urging them to go and read your paper in the BMJ. So uh, Vinod's written um, with Go Nishikawa an analysis article called Diagnostic Expansion in Clinical Trials, Myocardial Infarction, Stroke, Cancer Recurrence and Metastases may not be the hard endpoints that you thought they were. That's all for this podcast. Next time, we'll be back with some clinical advice on tapering opioids in patients who've been using them for a long time. We'll be back soon as well with some evidence that open placebo that's placebo people know as placebo, is actually still effective. And we'll discuss what that might mean for medicine and medical research. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. There you'll also find hundreds of episodes, all available for free. And if you want our full back catalogue, go to bmj.com podcasts. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.